massive welcome to Stephen Barclay for agreeing to be part of our Humans at Work podcast, which is very exciting. And I've known Stephen for a little while now. We got to know each other earlier in the year when we were running a superhuman summit. And he was so helpful during that summit, providing support to us and organizing meditation every morning and a whole other range of things he did behind the scenes. So I am super excited to be chatting with Stephen today. What I might get you to do, Stephen, is just share a little bit about Flynnrock and what your role is there. And then I want to get um, some of your perspectives of some of your time in India just briefly. But we'll kick off with your role at Flynnrock Consulting. Great. Thank you so much. And it's wonderful to be on your show. And and it's a really topic that's really dear to my heart about humans at work and human-centric. Um, and so, yes, I'm the Director of Global Business at Flintrock Consulting. Um, the origins of the organisation is from Mumbai and in India. Um, and the founder of the organisation um, and the principal is Kavya Rasu. And uh, we've, we work with organisations um, in around the cultural change, uh, but specifically around digital transformation, um, modern workplace learning um, and values, um, values-based cultures, values-based leadership. Okay, beautiful. I'm going to ask you um, a bit more about the values side of it later on. But can you share with us, I know you've spent a lot of time in India and you've recently come back to Australia And I also know that India is the kind of place that tends to have a transformational impact on people. So if you can share with us maybe one or two of the highlight stories about your work in India and across all the different hospitals and health centres and everything that you worked at, that would be really helpful. Yeah, thanks. You know, I think that I have worked in other countries as well, uh, but... Yes, it is really quite a cultural shift um, when you when you go and work in such a place as India. Um, I think in the first twelve months, I lost um, ten kgs, um, and you know, I just had a sensitive stomach, and and it took me a while to adjust to the, just the different type of food, and and then just the different ways of working, um, and particularly working for a not for profit hospital. Uh, in India. And I was working in a place called Mount Abu uh, in Rajasthan. And it's in the southern part of Rajasthan. And and Rajasthan has a population of 56 million people. And the district that I was working in had a population of about 1 million. And the hospital I was working at was the only tertiary hospital serving that population. Um, A population of a million. We had the only ENT surgeon, the only psychiatrist, a psychiatrist, the only speech pathologist. Um, so it was a really um, an important service to, to be there. And the reason why I wanted to work at that organisation was that they had um, a spiritual approach. Uh, they had spiritual values. Uh, they taught meditation, um, uh, offered meditation to all of their patients, um, particularly in patients. Um, they had a number of meditation rooms in the hospital, uh, and they also taught positive thinking and stress-free living. They had a spiritual counsellor. So it was a really different model of care, which I, having had worked in the mainstream uh, healthcare systems in Australia and the UK, I was really interested in working in something that was a little bit different. Absolutely. I, I, 
Yeah, and I, th I think there's two parts of the experience. There's the work experience and then there's a living experience. Um, and I can remember really early on there was one moment that really touched me and moved me, and it was when we were... Um, we had a program where we were being sponsored by an international organisation called Orbis, and they were a capability program around paediatric ophthalmology. And they were had a three-year funded project with us to build our capabilities around all aspects of paediatric ophthalmology, being both um, surgery and optometry and, and facilities and equipment, um, with the idea that after three years they'd go out and they would have built our capabilities. And I remember we were we had just done a surgery on a young boy who um, who was blind in both eyes, but he had um, uh, it was sort of a it wasn't um, uh, it was something that could be corrected. And I was there at the moment when they took the patches off his eyes. He was about nine years of age, and his father was there, and he saw his father for the first time. Mm. And and it was just, it was a melt, just seeing the look on his face, it was just, it melted me. Uh, and the look on his father's face and everybody in the room was, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And then I thought, right, this is why I'm here. Um, and, and I saw a lot of examples of that and, and working in a place where, you know, there's below the poverty line um, is the term that they use there was you know, about 38% of the population live below the poverty line. Mm. So the service was really crucial. Um, and so to be working in a, that type of situation was um, very heartwarming. Um, and But working in any place where you are different and you're an outsider and you don't have all of the cultural nuances, it's challenging and it takes time to get used to um, working within the culture, within the language, within the, the ways of working. Mm, and you're on a constant learning curve, aren't you, with finding different things out about, you know, food or mannerisms or little cultural nuances from... Yeah, hand movements, um, you know, pronunciation, and it, so so many different things, and and also my accent, um, and uh, it's it's quite funny, you know. There's so many different things. Um, so, speaking of your accent, where do you hail from originally? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Australia. Um, uh, originally, my first um, twenty four years were spent in Queensland, um, and. Um, the state of Queensland, and then I moved to a place called Newcastle um, where I spent 16 years before I left for India. Right. Um, so good place Newcastle is. Yeah, um, <laughs> Novocastrians, great place. <laughs> and tell us, the work that you're doing now in organisations, you talked about earlier about working with organisational culture and leadership and you also talked about digital transformations. So can you explain the connection of a digital transformation project with a cult with culture change in an organization? Oh wow, what a great question. I mean, they're they're just so vitally linked. Um, and so many uh, digital transformation projects go pear-shaped because they don't take into consideration the cultural issues. Um, and, and people will go back to the old systems, the old paper systems, because uh, they haven't sat down and listened to the stories about um, why the particular system that is that they have works, 
what are the emotional connects to that system that they currently have? Mm. And what does the new digital system need to replicate that emotional experience in terms of all of the things that go with it in order for them to adopt fully um, the, the, the new technology that's being um, put forward? Mm. Um, and, and so it, it's, really under, it's really sitting down and listening to people's stories. Um, and, and it has to, this is why it's human centric. You have to understand why the current system works for them. What is it that they want? What are the emotional things that will be important to them um, in the new system and taking them along at every step of the way? Mm, I think that's so critical. I, I always object when people say that they, they feel like people don't like change because in my experience, if you are connecting with the person in a human centric way, and you're finding out what their values are, you're finding out what's important to them emotionally, like what you've just said, they will happily walk with you wherever you need to go. But in my experience, the people who are not liking change are usually the people who have not been brought along the journey very well in the first place. Yeah, it's connecting it to them and what's important to them. And I think... I think that my experience is that when we really sit down and listen to people, what's going on for them, and we take the time to do that, um, we can tie everything into that and we can take that into account for. But if we if we don't take that time, that's when things go pear-shaped. Yeah, that's true. So we're really in many respects talking about human skills. I just want to dig into that topic a little bit more for us for a moment. I know um, earlier on in the conversation you mentioned your interest in values and values-based leadership, but I'm interested in how values and human skills go together as being like a, a frontline set of things that people need to be able to learn and align with. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, the technical skills that we've learned um, with respect to our job, um, the competencies that we've developed over time will always change. If we all look at our career as it is now, what we started off with 30 years ago is quite different. But you'll find that the values that keeps driving your decision-making, which keeps informing your goals, your short-term goals, your long-term goals, your career goals, is the values um, they're those things that are really that are set behind that. Um, and so, you know, that that does influence the things that you decide that you're interested in um, and in terms of uh, technical. But still, I think that you can you can still keep your values intact and um, and be offered new competencies to be learning. Mm. Um but I think that if people feel that the work that they're about to embark on, has a connect to what's really of value to them, then they'll be more um, likely to enjoy the journey of learning that new skill. And to give a specific example of that, it could be that someone is wanting to become more competent with their relationships. And so they are more open to learning the skills of listening or questioning or building rapport because they can directly see how those skills help them to be better at um, their relationships. And also the other flip side of that is that there are some things that I have to do that I don't like doing, but they're connected to my long-term values around, it might be around independence. And there's some things like the accounting side of things, the tax side of things, the 
the regulatory types of things, which are all skills that I have to learn in my business. I may not necessarily like them, but my values are around, you know, um, uh, giving people um, opportunities um, to be their best. And I want to grow an organisation that enables as many people as possible to do that. Well, I have to suck it up um, because they're my values and that's my direction and learn those other, wear those other hats that, that sometimes you just don't like to wear. Yeah. Um, so, so there's always going to be some competencies that you develop that you don't enjoy so much, but because you, you're really clear on where you want to go, there's some things that you just got to suck it up. If you had to choose the top two skills or competencies that you felt were most important for workplaces today and people within workplaces today, what would those top two skill, human skills or competencies be? Um, they're, they're, they're very connected. So I'll start with the first one. First one is around self-awareness um, as, as a competency because that, that can be taught. Um, to, to help people to be more self-aware. Um, I'm working with an organisation at the moment and I'm teaching them a strategy which I call SOS. I, I borrowed it um, and it's called Stand Back, Observe and Steer. And it's just a way of helping people and each process has, has um, various steps in it. Well, we've been working for five weeks on SOS and each and for half an hour every Thursday, and we just, we just go into it. And then gradually that's helping them into a space of being more aware about what's really important to them and st- staying in their power. Mm. Um, so self-awareness, I think, is a really important competency. It's really crucial um, in terms of emotional intelligence, in terms of, um, you know, resilience. Um, and that's because we're seeing that it's, it's the most crucial skill. If you've got resilient individuals within your organisation, you'll, you'll have more chances of a resilient organisation. Mm. Just, just unpack that a little bit for us. When you say resilience, what do you actually mean? What's the nuts and bolts of what you're actually talking about? Um, look, it's the, it's the ability to be able to step back and observe what's going on and there is turmoil. There are things that may be disturbing or disrupting. And being resilient means being able to be in that without um, totally crumbling because we do crumble um, and being able to see glimpses of where I need to be going and what I need to be doing to get me out of that particular space. Yeah. I mean, some people use the word bounce. So I'm not so bounce back that's not my term um because it's really it's messy um our lives are messy and um the human condition is messy and organizations are messy and so resilience is about being able to stand in that messiness um and being able to see my way forward through through that yeah, and I, I think that that is um, without question one of the most important human skills because if you're unable to do that, then every step of the way you're facing situations that you feel like overwhelm you and you don't feel like you have the resources to address those situations. So therefore you get into this stress and anxiety and depression kind of thinking in and around it and it's not good for anyone. So 
to be able to pip all that at the post by getting some specific skills about resilience, I agree, is really important. What would you consider one other really important skill to have? Well, it's it's very much connected. The first is needed for the second. Um, and the second one is listening. Um, and the, the, the reason why self-awareness is because you've, you, it, learning to listen to yourself and learning to listen to how you're feeling um, and to be able to create a sense of quiet in your own mind enables you to be a good listener. Um, so I feel it's a really crucial step and it's, it's, a, it's a process that um, it takes time. And, and I was first introduced to this concept when I was being trained for a program called the Living Values Education Program, and I was the national coordinator of this program in Australia um, back in the late 90s and the early noughties. And um, I went to Oxford in the UK for this training program, and there was about 80 educators from all over the world. Uh, And uh, a fellow by the name of Neil Hawkes, um, who's the founder of an organisation called the Living Values Education, so the Values Education Institute, and he um, was giving, introducing us to the concept of active listening. And so this was really the first time that I'd heard about it. And we had, we were paired up and I was paired up with um, a Jesuit priest and he had come from a country in the Middle East and he had been transferred across to Paris and he'd found it really challenging. Um, and he had a whole heap of things on his chest that he hadn't been able to speak to anybody. And we were just listening and I was just listening and I wasn't saying anything. And at the end of it, he said to me, I got to say things that I've been having on my chest for a full year. And he said, just the way you were listening, I felt I could trust you. You were being patient, you were being calm. And then he just went to the next level. I wasn't solving his problems. I wasn't doing anything. I was just listening. Maybe a little bit of, you know, a demonstration that I heard what he was saying um, and emphasised with what, em- empathising with what he was saying. Um, but that was my first real step with him. That was powerful. And I was right. hooked after that. And and look, it's an on- ongoing process to learn how to be a good listener. Um, and um, I think, you know, if you've got a, my, my career as a facilitator has really helped me to be uh, a listener because, uh, you definitely get pointed out if you're not listening, um, and that that you know, and people will, yeah, and 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 then they'll point out to you your biases as well because that's but that's why the self awareness is important because you have to be aware of what your biases are, um, mm. and uh, so they there for me uh, that are really right up there as the two key competencies: self awareness and and listening. And, you know, what strikes me as really interesting about these competencies is when we're young and when we're growing up, we're not taught these things. You know, it's not it's not until, like your example, you happen to be in some professional development thing when you're at work somewhere and you're away on some retreat or whatever that you might get taught it. But you might be 45 or 50 or 55 before anyone ever sits you down and has a conversation with you about listening and what's required to listen yeah. And I always, I always talk about the difference between listening to versus listening through, mm. you know. So listening in itself is not a straightforward one-dimensional exercise. It's, there's so many multiple layers to it. 
which I think makes it one of the underpinning human skills for everything else. Like, for example, you couldn't get resilience unless you were a good listener. Yeah, it it is three-dimensional and you're listening for what's being said, what's not being said, Um, and then, you know, you're creating a sense of trust and I think there's various levels and that's I think that's something to learn um, in the workplace is um, how to create those levels of trust and and know what your limits are in various situations. I I found um, a book that's been particularly helpful to me on that level um, is uh, Edgar Schein's Humble Consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really talks about those, those relationship building levels. Um, and, and I found that that really helpful. And, and I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s and I've just read that book now um, and, and it's taking me to, to another level So with respect to my listening. So I, I think that you, you can't do enough learning around listening. And I think until, um, you know, my last days um, in this body, I'll be learning how to be a better listener. So can we talk about, you mentioned earlier about your practice in and around meditation. And mm. I'd like to segue from listening to meditation because I think a core part of what we're doing when we meditate is listening and we're listening to ourselves, we're listening to messages that we're being sent, we're listening in a very multidimensional kind of way. Can you talk about maybe your personal experience with meditation and why you choose it as a daily practice? Yeah, I think you only continue with meditation um, because it has an impact. You you can't continue meditation. If people drop off meditation and stop doing it because they've stopped having experiences. Um, so I think that right at the very early stage, I had good experiences where I learned to be able to observe my thoughts and feelings. And that was the crucial thing because that's what was causing me to be really angry. Um, and I was, I was angry. Um, and people were noticing um, and people definitely noticed when I stopped being so angry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the meditation process that, that I use is actually open-eye meditation with the whole concept that there's um, a, a, a parallel between your meditation practice and real life. Um, so you're really trying to um, in, in, create a deeper sense of awareness of your of your inner world of your of your biases of your limitations of your belief systems um and that's why you know that that competency of self-awareness and listening and meditation all three um go hand in hand and my meditation practice goes through just learning to be with what you're hearing being learning to be with what you're seeing because it's all of those things that we get disturbed by what people say um, what we see people doing uh, and learning to be a little bit more detached from all of that what's mm. going on in the in the in the visual and the auditory world so it's it's about in part it's about creating the space in your mind and potentially in your th- thought processes that allows you to choose to respond to something rather than to automatically react to something. Yep, that's it. That's it. It's definitely around 
um, increasing the space between my thoughts um, so that I've got that capacity to pause. And that's going back to that, that acronym I used before, which is SOS, step back, observe and steer. And uh, the step back can be anything. And in this little little group that I've been working with with this organisation, it's been interesting um, as we get into week five is what step back means for them now as, it, as opposed to what it meant to them five weeks ago. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, sometimes there's physical things that we need to do to give us the space. Um, but my, my experience is the more that you meditate, the more that you have that capability to be aware of what's going on for you. And I think meditation creates more honesty um, uh, around what you're feeling. And I always start the meditation practice with how you're feeling right now and just acknowledge it, feel it. It doesn't matter. Am I feeling numb? If, I, if I'm feeling numb and I can feel it, that's fantastic. The fact that I can feel that I'm numb, the fact mm -hmm. that I can feel that I'm angry um, is a step forward. Um, the anger doesn't matter. And I think in that, in the process of really being able to connect to your feelings like that and to name them, that then empowers you to be able to choose how you would like to feel in the future or in different instances. But I don't think we can get to that point about choosing how we want to feel before we're able to recognise how we're feeling in the first place and, la and labelling some of those emotional experiences. Yeah, look, it's it's interesting what pathways people will take, and and in this um, the session I've been doing with this this corporate is um, we haven't been using the word meditation, and we just use this thing: step back, observe, and steer. And and it, it's slowly they talk about it, they talk about being aware, they use all of the words. Um, I don't have to use those words, mm. and and it's just about creating a safe space, um, but also experimentation you are required to experiment with this if you don't experiment you you won't be able to contribute to the conversation next week and it's just been fantastic because they're all experimenting they're yeah, experimenting with their children yeah this is this is a this is a company in melbourne um in lockdown and so they're experimenting with their families um with their extended families um and uh their colleagues and it's yeah, that's fantastic. And it's so powerful to be able to um, help people learn those kinds of skills because it has a bearing on every part of their life like you're talking about. It's not just this one-dimensional, you know, it's not just a tool that you learn in a work professional development sense and it has no bearing on anything else. It really does affect it. Um, I guess my, my wrap-up question for you is when you think about the future of work and the future of workplaces hmm. and the increase in technology, particularly in workplaces, yeah. which one of our human skills do you think is going to become even more important with the advent of more technology? Conversations. Mm. Crucial. Just absolutely crucial. And, and just going back to what you were saying is that um, one of the participants in this, this, this cohort group that I'm working with, they said what this is really different about other workplace trainings that they've been to is, is that I feel really good at the end of the day, but then that's it, it's over and it's finished. But you're meeting with us half an hour every week and we're getting to do action-based learning. 
Mm, so and, and, that ref, and the reflective. So I think that conversations is really important, but organisations creating spaces for unhurried conversations, for mm. people just to get to know each other, for people to get to know each other's values, to, for people to, to know to be aligned. And that's so much more important with, with um, remote learning, with, with remote working, um, yeah. because all of a sudden, you, you don't have the water cooler moments. You, you don't have just being able to pop in and, and, um, and sit next to your colleague and chat about something and, and bounce ideas off them. Um, and that sort of that built experience that we have at work is not there. So um, it becomes even more crucial um, to create opportunities for just conversing mm. um, outside of your routine, um, you know, work meetings at times. Absolutely. Um, what would you say as a word of advice to our humans at work listeners? Uh, as a word of advice, um, yeah, look, I think I, I said, you know, listening and awareness and conversations. I think um, I've always had a mentor of some shape or form that I'm able to speak through my issues um, or a wide circle of friends um, so that I can talk about what's going on in the workplace. I can talk about what's going on um, uh, uh, emotionally because I think that, you know, no matter what your industry, no matter what your level is, um, we always have some type of goal um, that we want to be doing within our workplace and having a mentor or a coach um, is really a useful thing or a cohort of people that you get together with every month and just chew the fat with about work-related stuff. Um, and I know, I know quite a people, few people that do have that and they find that really helpful uh, within their careers. So I think having a support network, whatever level you are in your career, um, whatever your um, vision is um, for your industry or for your organisation, you cannot do it alone. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I've really loved a lot of what you've contributed to our conversation here at Humans at Work. And I just want to reinforce what you've just said about having a really good group of humans around you, because at the end of the day, everyone can help everyone else that way and provide support and advice and insight. And that's what we want to be able to do is we want to be supportive of each other and helping each other to move forward. Yeah. Thank you, and it's it's been it's been a pleasure um, being with you again and having a conversation um, because I think these are important conversations that we need to be having, um, and creating spaces for others to have around uh, hu humans at work. And thanks so much, Steve. Appreciate your help.